This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors. So we're going to keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Welcome back, everyone, to the Place for a Purpose podcast. Today, we are really excited to have Peter Lovenheim join us. Peter is an author and journalist whose articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, LA Times, and the Washington Post. He also teaches narrative nonfiction at the Writers Center in Bethesda, Maryland. And in 2008, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called Won't You Be My Neighbor? That essay eventually led to his book that we're going to be discussing with him today called In the Neighborhood, The Search for Community on an American Street, One Sleepover at a Time. Peter, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for making time to be here with us today. Very glad to be with you. Great to have you. So you wrote this book about building community on your street, Sandringham Road, one sleepover at a time. And for those that haven't read the book, sadly, there's a story that motivated you to get to know your neighbors. So tell us the story behind the story. Okay. So I really was not thinking too much about how we live as neighbors today until there was a tragedy that occurred on my street, which is in the suburban neighborhood of Rochester, New York, in western New York State. There was a family down the street, a husband and wife. They were both doctors, and their two children, a boy 11 and a girl 12. And one night, the husband came home and shot and killed his wife and then killed himself. The kids ran screaming into the night. What struck me about this event, besides the obvious tragedy of it, was that this family who had lived on our street for seven years had essentially disappeared overnight. The kids went to another part of town to live with their grandparents. Pretty soon the house was put on the market for sale. I just didn't notice that this family's tragedy and loss had much impact on the neighborhood. I hadn't known the family well, just sort of to wave hi or bye if I saw them driving down the street. And in asking around, I found that no one else in the neighborhood had known them particularly well either. In fact, nobody seemed to know anybody beyond a kind of superficial level. And I asked myself a question, do I live in a real neighborhood or just in a place surrounded by other families whose lives are entirely separate from my own? I started to look into this event more because I was curious about what had happened. And what I learned was on the night that she was killed, My neighbor was in fear of her husband. Their marriage had entered a very rocky period. And that day, she called her best friend who lived in another part of town three times. And what she didn't know was her friend was out of town on a business trip, but she left messages. And I was able to hear those messages because her friend never had the heart to erase them. And they became more frantic as the day went on. Now, I'm speculating, but I think she may have wanted to see if she could stay overnight with her friend, with her kids. But that was not an option. So she did what she could. She went to her medical office that day. Then she picked her kids up from school, took them out to dinner to a restaurant, then took them to a public library where they could do their homework. 
But around 9.30, it was time for them to go home. And she told the kids to go upstairs and get ready for bed. That's when her husband got home. And the first thing he did was he began burning their mortgage papers in the living room fireplace, which is a somewhat hostile act under the circumstances. I think if my neighbor wanted to get out of the house at that late hour with her kids, her options were limited, though, because during the day, her husband had canceled her cell phone service. And when he got home, he disabled her car. So I think her options at that hour were probably limited to going to any of the other 36 houses on our street, including mine. And she didn't do that. I'm speculating, but I think she may not have chosen to do that because she simply didn't know anybody well enough. So I think if you're going to show up at 10 o'clock at night with your kids in their pajamas at somebody's house, in effect saying, my marriage is so far gone off the rails that I'm afraid to be at home, you probably need to know that person pretty well. You're unlikely to do that at a stranger's house. And so the tragedy then ensued. And after I learned all that, I asked myself another question, which is this. How is it that in this age of the internet and air travel and cell phones, where we can so easily create and maintain relationships anywhere in the world, why is it we so often don't know the people who live across the street? Or if we're in an apartment building down the hall, what do we lose by living as strangers to each other? That was the question that motivated me to write this book. And it sets you really on a journey to answer those questions. And I'll be honest, when we decided to make neighboring more of our full-time focus, we bought a bunch of neighboring books and we had your book and I didn't read it for several years. I thought the idea of the sleepover, I was unsure about that aspect. But when I finally read your book, I absolutely was captivated. I loved your book. You are truly a journalist, and I can see why you teach narrative nonfiction, because you write the stories beautifully. And I remember telling Chris before I read the book, okay, why do we need to know so much about all the stories about the people? I just want to hear what he learned. And then I started reading the stories about the people, Lou and Patty and these different people on on Sandringham Road. And what I realized was, well, I fell in love with you and your neighbors, but what I realized was all these mundane, ordinary details that you observed, they brought me into the story. And I thought about my sister-in-law just gave me a book on the art of observation. And I wonder if you would share a little bit about how you've learned to just notice people, because there were things that you observed about Lou and about some of your other neighbors that were very touching, but they were very ordinary. Yeah. Are you remembering any particular? The nightshirt, something about the nightshirt. And I saw you put it on your website. I saw a picture of the nightshirt and I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. But I don't know, just a lot of the ordinary interactions, the way you describe the house, the furniture, just people's idiosyncrasies. I wanted my readers to essentially, you know, ride on my shoulder as I had this experience, which went on about two years, as I recall. 
So I wanted the reader to see and hear and feel what I was seeing and hearing and feeling. And like you, I fell in love with Lou also. Lou was one of my neighbors who was an 86-year-old retired surgeon living entirely alone at this point in his life after his children had grown and moved on and his wife had passed away. And he and I spent a lot of time together getting to know each other, talking about the neighborhood. And maybe this is a good point where I could talk about why I did the sleepover. Yes, yes, we want to hear. Because it wasn't something that immediately came to mind when I was thinking about how to explore these questions. But I wanted to find a way of getting to know my neighbors beyond a superficial level. And as a journalist, I knew I could certainly, you know, just invite people out to Starbucks and have coffee and, you know, do an interview. But I didn't think that would get me at a level of intimacy that I would need to really understand what their experience was of living in their houses on our street. That's what I wanted to understand. How did it feel to live in this neighborhood from their perspective, from inside their homes? And I scratched my head for about six months over how to do that. What would the methodology be? And then at one point, I remembered my experience as a kid of sleeping over at friends' houses. I didn't do it a lot, but I did it enough so that I got to understand that it wasn't actually the sleeping over that I liked. It was the waking up the next morning inside my friend's house and coming down to breakfast. And I guess I'm dating myself here, but that was a time still when, when families had breakfast together for the most. And so I'd sleep in my friend's house. We'd come down to breakfast in the morning, and I'd be sitting around the table with the other family members, some of whom I really didn't know at all, you know, like my friend's dad or my friend's older sister. But I'd sit there and I'd listen to the conversation at breakfast, and I'd get a sense of what their day was like and what the relationships were among the family members. And then the next time I went over to play at my friend's house, these people did not seem like strangers to me. Like I had a sense of what life inside that house was like in a way I didn't have without the sleepover. So I thought, would any of my neighbors let me sleep over at their houses? It wasn't obvious at that point whether they would or not. But I did start asking, and in the end, about half said yes. You know, and, and it wasn't that I would just say, okay, I'm going to sleep over tonight. I was very clear. I told my neighbors, I'm writing a book. I'm curious about how we all live on the same street, what our experience is like, how people in America live as neighbors today. And we would do a series of interviews, usually starting at a coffee house, Starbucks or someplace. And then maybe we do a second or third or fourth interview at their home. By that time, I had a good sense of what their daily and weekly rhythm was like. And at some point, I would say, well, I really like to chronicle 24 hours in your life. And I wonder if you'd be okay if we started first thing in the morning. <laughs> and Did you feel sheepish to use the word sleepover or no? Well, <laughs> it's an interesting question. I think sometimes I use the less intimate sounding term bunk overnight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, how about if I bunk overnight and then I can be there first thing in the morning when we, but by that time, we'd gotten to know each other so well and we trusted each other. So everybody at that point said, sure. 
And I was glad that I hit on that methodology, because if you read the book, I think you'll pick up that many of the most intimate, revealing conversations occurred the morning after a sleepover. There's something about waking up under the same roof with people. Like, even if you don't know each other well, you still have both experienced the night in the same dwelling, under the same roof. You wake up in the morning, you both survive the ordeal. And the conversation was invariably very rich the next morning. I mean, I know for myself, the thought of, you know, initiating towards a neighbor, even maybe a neighbor I don't know very well, is extremely nerve wracking and there's insecurity there. And I just wonder for you, like, how did you deal with those emotions of maybe fear or nervousness? When they're strangers. When they're strangers, yeah, and you just don't know them very well. And when you ask them if you could do this, like, did a lot of people say no? Did you get a lot of rejection? Or did somebody say yes, and that kind of fueled you, and you're like, no, we can do this? Because I think we all, when we're thinking about meeting our neighbors, there's levels of anxiety, nervousness, you know, timidness. Yeah. Well, it's not unlike dating, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes you get a yes, and sometimes you get a no. Nobody rejected the idea out of hand. Even the people who ultimately said no seemed very open to my approach. And they liked the idea that we were finally connecting. We maybe had seen each other for years walking or driving down the street, but had never really talked. And I think in two instances, I did, people invited me in and we had lengthy initial interview, going over their background, when their families came to this country, how they happened to come to our city, that sort of thing. And then twice, the people would contact me the next day and say, you know, I've thought about this, and I like your project, but I'm just a private person. And I don't really want to be in a book that everybody's going to read. And I respect that. But I make the point that even in those cases, people seemed open to my approach. Yeah. I mean, I think that just speaks to what the desire that we all have for most of us for connection. We want to be connected. Yes, I I think that's exactly right. And that's one of the key things that I learned from this, that probably with very few exceptions, all of us have the same need to be known by the people we're physically nearest and to know others. It doesn't mean you have to be together all the time or be best friends, but simply to have a sense that the person living across from you or down the hallway knows who you are and, you know, is approachable if necessary in an emergency, for example, is very reassuring and even comforting, I think. So share with us and for our listeners who haven't read the book a little bit about the stories about Lou, what it was like. And I'd love to hear too, what do you still think about today on an ongoing basis from those experiences, from the sleepovers? Well, I miss Lou. He became like a father figure to me. And one regret was he didn't live until the book was published because Uh. he would have loved the attention. (laughs) (laughs) He he would have gotten a lot of calls from women. (laughs) He would have just, just eaten it up. But I guess what my big takeaway is, I mean, I drive down any street now and I look at the houses and I think, you know, there's a family in there and they've got fascinating stories behind them. You know, I think everybody's life looked fascinating. And you know that these people can enrich 
our lives and we enrich theirs. And it's too bad when we don't have those connections. I thought it was really interesting as you were interviewing some of these neighbors, you would ask them about their experience of living in the neighborhood. And you were like, what is the neighborhood like to you? Or what do you wish it would be like? What stood out from their comments about their perspective on the neighborhood and what they wished it was or what their observations were of it? I think with few exceptions, as I recall, virtually everybody I asked that question to said they would like to live in a more cohesive neighborhood, you know, where they are known by their neighbors. You asked about the story that that developed. I started to actually know what my story would be because I hadn't met the characters yet. But after meeting Lou and meeting a young couple in a house on the other side of my home, somebody told me that I should really contact this woman, Patty who lived three doors down from me. And she'd been there three years, but I had never had any contact with her. I don't even recall having seen her. But I sent her an email and she responded positively. And what I learned from Patty once we got to know each other is she was also a doctor, a radiologist. Everybody she, on your street was a doctor. Yeah, we, we, have, we do have a lot of doctors. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not one of them. Yeah, I was uh, like, he's the only non-doctor on the yeah. street, basically. <laughs> but Patty, sadly, had, as a radiologist, had diagnosed her own breast cancer. On top of that, she was recently divorced, and she had two young children at home. As her illness progressed, she clearly needed more support than she was able to get just from her elderly mother and a sister who lived in the area. For example, she lost the ability to drive at one point, and so she needed help getting to medical appointments and getting home. Sometimes she'd be delayed. She would need somebody to watch her kids when they got off the school bus and watch them in the house until she came home. So I became aware that if there was anybody in our neighborhood who needed the support of a real neighborhood, it was Patty. So seeing if I could patch together like a real support network among neighbors for Patty became my goal in the second half of the book. So what started as really just a sort of a social experiment became this effort to patch together a real neighborhood to support one of our neighbors. And that turned out to be possible, actually, and really very, very rewarding. Yeah. A really powerful moment that you wrote about between you and Patty was when you asked her, and I have the quote here, you asked, so how does it feel to be surrounded by people who know your difficult situation, right? Because it'd been in the news, but who are not available to talk or to be of any help or comfort. And I was just curious, like, did that... Yeah, what did she say? I don't have the rest of the quote. I just have a question about at that. <laughs> you oh, were you going to ask me? Huh? Hey, uh, <laughs> well, I think she, as I remember, it was kind of like, it was painful for everybody to know that she has this cancer, but yet there's no con community there of people who are able to then reach out because they don't know her well enough to be like, hey, I heard in the news you have cancer. So I just wondered if your kind of mission then in the second half of the book there to connect Patty to her neighbors kind of came out of that conversation or what was it like being in that moment with her? Well, I felt actually very grateful that I somehow had almost inadvertently put myself in a position where I was able to connect her to people. For example, Lou, the retired physician 
living alone, complaining that he had so little to do, and all he wanted to do was find someone he could help. Guess what? Five houses down from Lou's is Patty. And so connecting Patty and Lou became one of my goals. And we were successful with that. And when Lou, what touched me so much in that was not only were you serving and helping Patty, but yeah, you didn't see yourself as the only answer to her problem was you really wanted her to experience that from other people too. And then when Lou got involved and you made Patty call from your cell phone at the breakfast, you made her do it in front of you because you were worried she wouldn't reach out. And when Patty tried to thank Lou He said multiple times, you can't thank me, don't thank me, because you're the one who's giving meaning to my life. Exactly. And he was totally honest in saying that. That's exactly who he was. I just felt grateful that I could be the instrument to bring those two people together. And I also was able to connect Patty with at least one of the other neighbors also. Another beautiful moment from your book was towards the very end, you share about on the heels of having gone through a divorce and you were dating this woman, Marla, and really shared a lot of wonderful experiences with her. And then the relationship came to an end. And in that, you reached out to Lou and he took you into his home and you you went back into that room. I wanted you to put the nightshirt back on, but you, you went back into that room Yeah. I mean, I was in quite a bit of distress over the breakup. Yeah. And I think I I woke up really early that morning. I went out for a walk. It was, I don't know, 6 a.m. And I really wanted to be with somebody. But I knew from sleeping over at Lou's house and getting to know him that he would likely be up at that hour. And I think I saw the light on in his kitchen. So I called him and he said, come on over. And he made me breakfast. He took care of me. He made me breakfast. He saw that I was tired. He told me to go upstairs and go to sleep. So I went up in the same room that I had slept over in. And and he put the blanket on you. That's right. And even referred to himself as dad. Hmm. Yeah. And I felt so taken care of and comforted. And I was just about to fall asleep. And it occurred to me, oh, this is the ending to my book. Because <laughs> I, I wasn't clear how the story was going to end. And I thought, no, this is the ending. This works. (laughs) So that was kind of a gift. You said that it would end up being me who would find shelter at a neighbor's house is something that had never occurred to me, yet there it was. And that experience of you finding shelter, it reminded me of an Old Testament verse where it says, Seek the welfare of the neighborhood, and in its welfare, you will find welfare. And I just thought, there it is. You were seeking the welfare of Sandringham Road, and in its welfare, in its prosperity, that's where you found shelter and rest and welfare. And that was a really beautiful moment. Do you know where that quotation comes from? It's Jeremiah 29, 7. Uh, and so the prophet is writing to the the nation of Israel that is exiled in Babylon. And it says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
So instead of wishing to be back in the promised land, which is yeah, very good hope and dream to be back, he said, this is actually where God has you. So you need to like seek the good of this city. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish and I've always heard that sentiment expressed by rabbis and other teachers in our long diaspora, where whatever country we ended up in, work for the welfare of that country, because ultimately that's your own welfare too. I'm curious, like, so after you wrote the book, I think I heard in another interview that you did that you would, you know, you were obviously invited to speak on this, on the book and share the story and you'd have conversations with people in those moments. What were some of the things that people shared about their neighborhoods or what did you learn from just talking about the story in your book with other people that like over the years of just talking about it? Yeah, I did have the opportunity to do a lot of traveling and talking about about this topic, really coast to coast. And I think two things stand out. One is that absolutely everybody I talked to expressed the same desire to know their neighbors and be known by them. And the second thing was that people experience this during natural disasters. In California, people told me about wildfires. In the South, it might be hurricanes or floods. In the North, winter snowstorms, let's say. But I heard so many stories about people who were afflicted by these natural disasters and were forced by circumstances to come out of their houses and work cooperatively with their neighbors to get through the event. And universally, they expressed that as a positive experience. There was one fella in Florida who was telling me about a particular hurricane where they lost power, they had no air conditioning, they had no power. He said everybody had to cook on gas stoves in the street. And he said he was surprised how many of his neighbors recognized him as a neighbor, even though they had never spoken. And he enjoyed getting to know them all. And he finished his story by saying, well, then the power came back on and everybody went back in their houses. He said, I almost find myself wishing for the next hurricane so I could see all the neighbors again and catch up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's sort of funny, but it's also sort of sad that in the way our society has evolved, we so often need a natural disaster to come out of our houses and get to know the people who are physically closest to us. I think there's a lesson in there that, you know, we should try to really try to do this without the natural disaster. Yeah, we don't, we don't need to lose our power and see our trees uprooted to get to know our neighbors. Well, and in that, there's a common ground that's happening around a pain point. So I'd love to hear what advice do you have for our listeners, for people who they might be more focused on the differences how can we learn from that example of just engaging with people from in our differences? I mean, this was one of the great advantages of doing the sleepovers, because if you get inside someone's house, I mean, you see just how common our daily lives are. If there's little kids in the house, I mean, parents are dealing with all the kids stuff, whether you're you know, regardless of what religion or political persuasion you are, if the person is elderly, they deal with loneliness. And I mean, often in thinking about this part of my experience, particularly today, where we are so divided in the country politically, 
I think knowing each other as neighbors becomes even more important because when you get to know another person as a neighbor and you know their family members, their kids, maybe their parents who come to visit, their in-laws, something about their daily lives, you just see the common ground there. And it's a lot easier to overlook the fact that, oh, that person's right wing or that person's left wing, because that's not their whole definition. Like you replace that stereotype about them with real facts about what their kitchen looks like and how old their kids are and that they visit one of the grandparents in the nursing home every Sunday afternoon. I mean, you get to see the totality of their lives. And you don't have to just judge them then on their politics. I really think if you look at American history, our early towns were built around a common ground. There was a common green, typically, and people met there and they talked and they shared news of the day and they got to know each other quite apart from what their politics were. And I think that the neighborhood was meant to be a key building block of a healthy civil society. And we need that today more than ever. And unfortunately, in many cases, we've lost it. But bringing back that neighbor to neighbor knowledge and, and community sense, I think would go a long way toward keeping us civil, even as we disagree on, say, politics. Yeah, I think that's a really good word for us today. How we just a reminder to not elevate that part of someone's life, their, let's just say, political view to the level of that being their full identity. And I feel like that's what we've done instead, reminding yourself that they are, a, we're a lot more alike and looking for ways, if it's not a sleepover, but a barbecue or a dinner or hanging out in the driveway, ways to connect our everyday lives and see that there's similarities there. We're all going through the same stuff. Yeah. I would take a slightly different spin on it. I would say that we don't even have to see all our commonalities. It's just that if you see somebody else and all the daily challenges they deal with, child rearing, taking care of elderly parents, taking care of their house, being involved in the community activities, just dealing with house repairs, whatever, then it becomes much harder to dismiss that person as just their political identity. You know the totality of their lives, and you can identify with so much of what their daily life is about. I think it's important to keep in mind. Yeah. I'm curious if you were to write the book today, would there be anything you would add to it based on the reality of neighborliness or the lack thereof, or the divisions that we have that we seem more entrenched in? Or do you still look at it and you're like, no, that's kind of the message. The, like, the message is in the book and I wouldn't add to it, or would you? I feel very grateful to have you know been able to write the book. I think the only thing I would maybe do a little different is because of where the country's gone it's since the book came out, I would probably, I might work very hard to do a sleepover at the home of somebody who politically I totally disagree with. Can you just go ahead and do that and write another op-ed for us? Because <laughs> I two. really want to read about that. Yes. And I think it'd be so good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be the key today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your wheels okay. are turning. The the thoughts yeah. are turning. <laughs> well, you have a unique voice in this space and your experiences 
how you were changed by them, how your life was touched and enriched in such deep ways, and then the way you tell a story. So I'm seeing a sequel. Okay. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, just point of interest, I did get married a few months ago. Oh, Congratulations. Gotcha. We were talking about that yesterday. We were wondering. Yeah. Somebody I met after the book came out. And my wife is out of town this week. And last night I had dinner at one of my neighbor's homes. They invited me over. And this was one of the neighbors who I slept over and wrote about in the book. We've become very close friends since then. So which neighbor is this that you're talking about now? This was uh, Bill and Susan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They had two teenage kids at the time. Um, I've since been to one of the kids' weddings and had a nice dinner with Bill and Susan the other night. So. And I still see uh, Deb and Dave, my next door neighbors, who did not have children when I wrote the book, but now have two youngsters. And it was also interesting, just as an aside, but when Lou passed away before the book came out, but the person who took over his house actually hosted the publication party for the book. Wow. Wow, that's so neat. So we had all the characters I wrote about. Most of Lou's adult children came back, and we had a beautiful party at his house, and we had big portraits of him over the fireplace. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up, I didn't know if you would, you know, give you the opportunity here to have kind of the last word in just kind of speaking to our listeners and summing up the things you learned from the experience and what you wrote about. What would you say to just encourage us in taking those steps to get to know your neighbor? I encourage everybody to get to know the people who live closest to them, whether you're in an apartment building or in a street with detached houses. And the good news is you don't have to sleep over. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can just knock on the door or send an email, make a phone call. And if you say, you know, hey, I live two doors down from you and I'd love to at least become better acquainted with the people on our street. Would you mind if I stop by? I'm telling you, I think you've got a 95% chance that the person will say yes. Because what I learned is pretty much they also want the same thing. And again, you don't have to be best friends, but you never know when you're going to need somebody's help at an odd hour or on a weekend or when all your best support people are unavailable. And it may very well be the neighbor who can be of help. And similarly, you could be the person who could step in and help your neighbor. Either way, it's a win. And the reason for you writing this book, though it came out of such a tragedy, it led to you, as you reflected back on it, wanting to help a future neighbor who might be in need. And when you talked about Patty And wanting her story when she was going through as a single mom, she was going through cancer alone. And you talked about wanting her story to be redemptive in light of the tragedy that had happened, that it wasn't right, that someone should be on your street needing help and that help is all around and yet nowhere. And so you got to see that. You got to see a woman who was struggling, who had needs, and it brought meaning to, you know, in this case, Lou's life. It truly was a story of redemption. And I think that's what 
I take from, from the book is one, the power of just seeing people and observing them and noticing that it's all those tiny little idiosyncrasies that make someone a human being. And that is beautiful and that's worth experiencing. But then also the power of just being there for people and getting to experience that back in your own life. So thank you for the gift of writing this book and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about. Or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us. Tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram, and you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend. Mm -hmm.